When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Avengers, Age of Ultron. He's garbage, folks. Is it an alligator or a crocodile? I don't know the difference, and at this point, I'm too afraid to ask. Look at that. That is a werewolf. <laughs> What is up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Denny Geek Presents Marvel Standom Live. I am your host, Mike Cicchini, and with me for all time and always, or at least until they get sick of me, we have Denny Geek TV editor, Alec Bajalid, Denny Geek News and Features editor, Kirsten Howard, and welcome back to the show, House to Astonish host and master of the crazy title card uh mr al kennedy <laughs> al how you doing i'm good i like my new title card this is excellent it plays into both the fact that i'm scottish and that you should never put me in your mouth um remember this is a pg-13 show please thank <laughs> you very much uh, a lot of people are I allergic to me <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you and Kirsty are uh, you know kind of conspiring to push the envelope already, and uh, we're only thirty <laughs> seconds into the show, so I see what, what is in store I for done? me. What have no, I I'm done? Just... I've done nothing. <laughs> They're sun poisoned. They have no idea what's going on. <laughs> it's so hot here. I'm giving them some leeway here because it is absurdly hot in the UK, and while I am an iguana because of my Mediterranean blood, and I love. Uh, hot and humid New York City summers. That is not for everybody. So uh, let's let's be extra kind to Kirsty and Al this week because they are laboring under the effects of climate change, uh, just as I was last week when I was inhaling smoke during the show from the Canadian wildfires. This week, in case you do not already know, it is another edition of the Marvel Standom Book Club, and we are talking about Kirsty, me, the Skrulls. Meet the Scrolls, which I did read, I swear to God. Al, were you the one who suggested this? Yeah, I think it, partly because it's obviously just very topical right now, and partly because I hadn't read it and I wanted an excuse to read it. Like, I'd been looking for a, a real reason to motivate myself to read it. And uh, the fact that Secret Invasion is just around the corner was the perfect time to go, right, okay, well, this is it. This is where I'm going to actually make the, the leap into reading Meek Scrolls. I'm so glad that we read this book. This is just like, it's another gem. There's another absolute gem that I tore through in one sitting. How had I never heard of this? It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's it's not the kind of thing that you would think would immediately get greenlit as a series because you know, it's a five-issue miniseries with absolutely no established characters in it at all. And... It, you know, it's five or four scrolls who just happen to be this sleeper cell, as I'm sure we'll get on to. It's a fairly big gamble, I would have said. You know, this is not the kind of thing where you put it out there thinking it's going to do Secret Wars numbers. 
Kirsty, I think you should run this down for everybody a little bit, right? And then, uh, and then we'll start really diving into the glory that is Meet the Scrolls. I'll do a little summary of the plot for you and apologize for my pronunciation uh, ahead of time. Uh, Meet the Scrolls is a five-issue series from Robbie Thompson and Nico Hon I did. I scrubbed through so many YouTube videos trying to work out how to pronounce his name. I'm so sorry, Nico. Uh, launched off the back of Captain Marvel's theatrical release. Uh, the upsetting and affecting story of the book follows the Warners, an undercover family of Skrulls who are trying to stop a mysterious effort called Plod Project Blossom from developing tech that would make all Skrulls true forms visible and therefore eliminate them as a threat. The Warners are invariably struggling to complete their mission on Earth, but eventually do so, retrieving the source of Project Blossom's power, their captured third daughter from Stark HQ. However, Stark is not involved in Project Blossom, and it turns out that the effort is in fact being run by the Kree under Stark's oblivious nose. The family end up being cut off from the Skrull Empire after they are betrayed by a superior, with their patriarch dead and their future uncertain. And there's also more, but we'll we'll discuss that in a bit. It sounds like kind of unassuming, and I guess by like Marvel limited series standards, it kind of is, right? Again, I was I was absolutely floored by this book. I don't exactly know why, but I want to start with Alec just because I feel like Alec as the, you know, general MCU appreciator, but, you know, relative Marvel Comics neophyte is usually a pretty good barometer, you know, even when we don't see eye to eye on stuff. So I'm real curious how something like this hit you, Alec. I like, you know, when you're doing an experiment and you have to establish a baseline first, just like how baseline reality is. That's my role on Marvel Standom. <laughs> Let's get the ground set first, see what the normal person, <laughs> how they would respond to this, and then we'll go into our thoughts. Um, well, establishing the baseline on this one, I quite liked it. This was very good. Hearing some of your superlatives, Mike, I get the sense you may have enjoyed it even more than I did but I, I'm in like solid seven and eight out of 10 territory. I thought it was a very fun read uh, as somebody who really loves the Americans, one of the finest TV dramas of all time. Um, this really hits home and does that secret agent spy family format really well, moves along at a nice play, uh, pace. I like the characters. I have very little to complain about this week. This is one of the, the rare comic assignments in which I was not tortured. Kirsty, how about you? I really liked it. Yeah, um, really liked it. It reminded me of Vision. Is that Tom King? I can never remember. Yeah, it reminded me of that. Really well-structured, well-told, easy to read, not like jam-packed with like dialogue or exposition or things that are too tricky to understand like like Al said like like it's only got Tony Stark in it and it's only briefly we don't know these people but it, it's we get to know them really quickly um so excellent craftsmanship here and this is written by Robbie Thompson who is the uh, was the executive producer of Supernatural and the Winchesters and wrote for that those shows and he's obviously got some experience, you know, dealing with like monsters on the run from hunters. But this feels like it's more of a reverse 
version of that story. So it's um it's really really good, really touching, and I I thought it ended on quite a quite a thoughtful note. Um, they the, the comic straight up murders some children in the first few pages, so it's uh, it's not something that you can read lightly. Maybe, but uh, it, it's good. It's good stuff. I recommend it. Wow, you're the one who brought this to our attention. So I, I take it was this your first read as well? It was, yeah, and I absolutely loved it. Like I, going into it, I knew that it was Robbie Thompson was the writer, and I think the fact that he had all this experience with Supernatural, with the Winchesters, it shows through in the fact that you've got this family dynamic where everyone is very dependent on each other because they're the only people who really understand the world that they have to share with the, the, the family unit. But at the same time, they're very antagonistic towards each other in that very kind of the Winchester-y way. Like the, the Winchesters... For anybody who hasn't seen Supernatural, there's so much of it, I don't know how you've managed that, but like, if you haven't seen Supernatural, it's basically about a couple of underwear models who drive a car around and kill things. <laughs> and they, um, they never met a secret that they couldn't keep from each other, um, particularly if it was going to be extremely destructive to their relationship. <laughs> and um, they, it, it's just a CW thing, I think. Like any time you have any character on a CW show that's got a secret of any kind, they're they're always just like, will I tell the most important person in my life about this? <laughs> no, I'm sure I'll be fine. And then, you know, at the end of the season, it comes back and somebody gets stabbed or shot or blown up or goes to hell or whatever. But anyway, that that's the general dynamic of Supernatural. And that kind of thing plays out in Meet the Skrulls as well. Because, you know, as Alec was saying, the Americans is a huge influence here because, again, it's about this um, embedded agents, this sleeper cell, who are kind of biding their time at the, uh, the direction of their spy masters. But at the same time, it is a family setup, which is, it is very like the Americans, but it's also very like Supernatural. And Robbie Thompson does such a good job of threading the family interaction stuff in with the the spy uh, elements. Really, really reads fantastically. I'm so um, so glad that um, I got to read this. The art being by Nico, and I'm going to try this now and see if he hates me any less for it. But Nico Henry Sean, I, I I'm just going to go with Henry Sean. Nico Henry Sean, I first saw the work of on a Vertigo graphic novel called Pride of Baghdad, which was written by Brian K. Vaughan pre-Saga, pre-Ex Machina, all, all those kind of big, big hits they had. Um, I think it was one of the first things he did for Vertigo, maybe around the same time as he was starting out doing Wild Last Man, but it's about a pride of lions that are inadvertently freed from a zoo during... Um, the Iraq war in Baghdad. It's a great story. It's a very sad story. Um, the art is unbelievable. Like it is so, so good. Nico has, I'm going to just stick with Nico. I'm not going to go near the surname again. Um, he's kind of popped up in a few different places since then. He did a, a run on New Mutants, bizarrely. Um, but this is the first thing I've seen from him in a little while. And it is gorgeous. It's so, so good looking. So yeah, that's my general thoughts. <laughs> I think it's terrific. What struck me about this is that 
Like, I can understand why this wouldn't make much of a splash as single issues, as a limited series. And I can also see how this was commissioned, you know, during the wave of like, you know, Captain Marvel mania as that movie went to make a billion dollars. But this book works so well as something that if you have zero knowledge of Marvel comics, if all of your Marvel knowledge comes solely from the MCU, you could pick this book up after watching Captain Marvel and feel like you are getting more of the story that is such a difficult balance to strike. At the same time, if you removed the overt Marvel names and references, like if the Skrulls were just shape-shifting aliens, if Tony Stark was just like a, you know, some independent type superhero like you would find in, you know, like an Invincible comic or something, the pacing, the style, the way this is so self-contained, the way it gives you everything that you need from page one. If this was just like an independent comic as well, you know, in, in a sci-fi world that where, you know, there's an armored superhero who pops in every now and then, it would still work just as well. Like, that is the thing that kind of fascinated me so much. Like, knowledge of... Marvel Comics history only enriches, you know, what is there on the page, but it's not necessary. You know what I mean? Like you can come at this as a Marvel Comics fan, as an MCU fan, but I also kind of feel like you could just come at this, like if this was like a self-contained graphic novel, I almost wonder if this would have made more of a splash, like without, you know, in critical circles and wherever else, like without the Marvel baggage attached to it, right? It's just so good. Like, and it doesn't do any one thing particularly extraordinarily. You know what I mean? Like, you know, Kirsty mentioned earlier, you know, the, the, there is some similarity with, say, Tom King's vision, which obviously was a big influence on WandaVision and is a perennial trade paperback seller, as it should be. Vision is like a real, you know, like really gets into your 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 soul in ways that meet the scrolls maybe doesn't but it's just as effective like i i just you know so again like this is not like um you know again i, I don't know if this is like a like a masterpiece level book but it's really really good and i feel like it deserves more attention it feels like it should be a perennial trade paperback seller um I don't know why this isn't being kind of championed more with secret invasion, like, you know, within sight now, I mean, like I'm going to be telling people on this show and elsewhere, don't read secret invasion. If you're <laughs> watching secret invasion, read meet the scrolls. <laughs> it's so weird, isn't it? Because in the, uh, in this book, obviously Gaia is the name of the, the mum scroll. I'm just going to call her. Gaia is the name of Amelia Clark's scroll in the Secret Invasion TV series. So it feels like this has more connective tissue uh, between um, Captain Marvel and Secret Invasion than the actual Secret Invasion comic <laughs> in a lot of ways. And it certainly sets a vibe of like, you know, scrolls who have been cut loose and are lost and just do not know how to live in our world. Um, so it, it's honestly a, a better comic to read than Secret Invasion before the TV show starts. 
I think it's definitely, if you were to say, here's the trade paperback of Secret Invasion, the, the Marvel event series from 2009, and here's the trade paperback of Meet the Skrulls. I definitely would say if you're preparing to watch Secret Invasion, the TV show, then Meet the Skrulls is going to be the better preparation for that to get you into the, the mindset. I would also say that if you're planning on doing anything at all, I would choose the other comic you're offered over Secret Invasion because Secret Invasion is a terrible comic. <laughs> but um, I, I think that, Mike, what you were saying about the fact that it came out to no real fanfare, I think if it had been an independent comic, if it had been Meet the Body Snatchers instead of Meet the Scrolls, yeah. it would have been more successful, I think, because yeah. if you are random five-issue Marvel miniseries with no major characters other than a spit and cough cameo in like issue four or whatever from Iron Man, then what happens is you just get lost. You get totally subsumed by the vast numbers of X-Men and Spider-Man and all the other things that are coming out that have got the marketing budget behind them. But if you're just, no, let's do something with Skrulls because Captain Marvel's coming out. Do we need to put any massive name creators on it? No, but we've got some guys here who are pretty terrific. Let's give them a shot on this. That makes for a great comic, but it doesn't make for a comic that does well out of Marvel. However, if you're doing it as a, a separate standalone, you know, it's a, it's a spy story with shape-changing aliens. It's, it's an elevator pitch. It absolutely sells itself. And I think that if it wasn't trying to compete against... Um, every other Marvel title, it would have done better and, and people would know more about it. If I had there was a new show coming out uh, that was, you know, the Americans for shapeshifters, I'd watch it. I would make an effort. I would go out of my way to watch it. So, uh, it, yeah, we'll be talking about the Secret Invasion TV show in a, in a bit. But that sounds like a pretty good setup maybe compared to what we got i was gonna say exactly that yeah. <laughs> uh, i also i can't speak everything you guys are saying makes a lot of sense um and i can't speak to the economics of it but even from a purely creative standpoint i think this comic would work better without kind of the shoehorned in tony stark cameo the importance of tony stark really imbues what is essentially like a middle manager character with a lot more importance than I think it needs when he's not really, he doesn't factor into the story that much. Yeah. If this was just a shady corporation, not going on at, at Stark or whatever, it wouldn't matter. It's just a few panels with Tony being a dickhead and then leaving, isn't there? People love that though. I think the thing I'm just going to keep coming back to is this idea that this story is compelling enough even without the Marvel connections, which we rare, rarely see, like just, just rarely see in something like this, especially something that is so tied to what was one of the bigger, biggest blockbusters of the year. It's a good book to champion, folks. I'm always looking for comics that can be easy entry points for people. I want people to love comics, you know, like I just... Like, you don't have to love superhero comics, right? I mean, like, I love superhero comics, and I think there's a lot to love within that genre. But like comics as a medium 
it's just such a natural way of conveying a story. And I want people, I want more people to love comics and not feel like they are homework and not feel as if they are, you know, you know, that they're, they're part of this like massive pop culture blob. It's like, no, just like you listen to music or you read a book or you watch a movie or you watch a TV show, you should be able to pick up a comic. And every now and then, like some of these are going to be Marvel comics and some of these are going to be DC comics. And this is, this is one of those examples. Doesn't have to be as challenging as vision or, you know, or Watchmen or even Sandman, you know, like, but I think this has the makings of a perennial book. You know, I wonder if they experimented with different formats, you know, like you're starting to see like those smaller scale, you know, almost like manga sized reprints. Like when I first read Runaways, for example, they were in those like manga, like, like slightly bigger than digest size. Like that was how they chose to collect them, which was like the most perfect way to present Runaways to, to a young adult audience. Right. I think, I think they got to find a way to give a book like this another push. I think the other difficulty that they have with a book like this at Marvel is that this is not an action story. No. You know, Marvel is Marvel's in the business of big superhero action stories and it does them very well. I mean, it does them badly as well, but like it, it has the potential to do terrific superhero action stories. But Marvel's thing isn't quiet, dread-filled spy stories. You know, the atmosphere that runs through this comic is not a gung-ho atmosphere. It's a bleak, miserable atmosphere. Everybody in this comic is in one way or another struggling with what they they feel that they have to do even when you've got the their the traitor the the jim phelps john voight character who is their handler who sets them up i would say though seeing a modern spy story like if you ever think that there's a mole it's definitely always your boss like <laughs> there's it's it's never someone who just happens to be on your team it's never the it guy it yeah. just go immediately for your boss that's who it is particularly if they're a respected character actor. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of, you know, meetings in cafes and things like that. It, it's not the Civil War airport fight. And that, I think, is maybe one of the difficulties to have. Like, how do you actually sell this if you are Marvel? Because it's not your main type of product. Like, this is my question now. And, and I, I apologize, like, if this is getting a little too into the industry weeds for everybody. But DC has, you know, historically they had Vertigo, you know, they had their Black Label line for a while. But even independent of their imprints, they've always been excellent at having perennial titles, right? Like you always know Watchmen, Dark Knight Returns, always going to be in print. More recently, Darwin Cook's genius New Frontier um, you know, Tom King and, and Mitch Jared's Mr. Miracle, you know, they have these books that are kind of like, they're like a cut above. They're not serialized super, superhero storytelling. They're self-contained. They're meant to, you know, they're meant to live on your bookshelf. They're meant to whatever. What is Marvel's equivalent of that? This is not me saying that they're not telling stories of equal quality that don't 
you know, that don't deserve this kind of treatment. But what are they? What are Marvel perennials like other than, you know, like the Masterworks type stuff and the Epic Collection type stuff? John Hickman's Secret Wars, as brilliant as it is, is completely impenetrable to a casual reader, right? Like, like what are they? Civil War is garbage. Secret Invasion is garbage. Like, what what are these books? Like, what are the and like and again, I keep coming back to Vision. Meet the Scrolls would kind of fit that. You know, what is like the Marvel equivalent of the Black Label? Can anybody help me out here? The difficulty that Marvel have or had until recently was that DC has always taken a long-term view when it comes to keeping things in print. Marvel had a very short-term, bottom-line-driven approach to keeping books in print. And a lot of that, it was literally to do with the cost of storing inventory. And this all comes down to Ike Perlmutter, who was, for people who don't know, he was was basically the guy at the top of the tree at Marvel until relatively recently. And he is famously a very bottom line driven guy, which extended things like uh, he cut down the number of toilets that they have in the Marvel offices because he, he thought for some reason it would reduce costs, I presume, on toilet roll. I don't know. Um, but he was also the guy that um, the reason why there was no Black Widow figure, uh, action figure at the time of the first Avengers movie is because Ike Perlmutter um, vetoed it because he said that um, kids didn't want to buy uh, action figures of women that kind of thing he he's gone from marvel now and hopefully marvel can take more of a long-term view on things like keeping inventory and print but it was for a long time utterly ridiculous take a book like kieran gillen and jamie mckelvey's young avengers right when the second volume the second trade paperback volume of that came out the first trade paperback volume was out of print that's the level of turnaround we're talking about here. Like it took six months between the first volume and the second volume coming out. And by the time the second volume came out, the first volume was out of print. DC, on the other hand, will just keep things in print forever. Um, you know, they'll keep Watchmen in print forever because that's the terms of their deal with Alan Moore and, uh, and Dave Gibbons. Um, they'll keep it in print so they don't need to give the rights back. But for Marvel, you know, there are there are things that, that are always going to be in print and are always going to sell... I mean, I really can't stand Civil War, the comic, but it's Civil War sells gangbusters for Marvel even now. Infinity Gauntlet is another one, sells huge numbers for them on a year-on-year basis. The things that they've done very well with recently, in fact, have not really tended to be the big number stuff that goes through um, the direct market or even through their bookstores. The things that they've done a lot of business on recently have been things like... Runaway, Squirrel Girl, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, and that's through Scholastic Book Fairs, where they sell absolutely ridiculous numbers. The whole reason why Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur made it to, like, whatever it was issue, about 37 or something like that, was because it was being kept alive through book fair trade paperback sales. But Marvel doesn't have that kind of, as you say, that sort of perennial bookshelf of things like, you know, Batman Year One or, or or things like that, you know, Superman for All Seasons, All-Star Superman, that, that kind of thing. That's not to say it couldn't do. You know, there's no reason why there isn't always yeah. a nice um, collection of Barry Windsor Smith's Weapon X 
or Craven's Last Hunt or Avengers Under Siege or any of the great storylines from Marvel's history, it just is a case that they, they didn't keep them in print because they could use that inventory storage for something else and not have to pay as much. I mean, that makes makes perfect sense. Like, and I and you're absolutely right. But I guess like that makes sense from <laughs> this makes me laugh enough. when you just go like that. That's exactly right. Factually but, accurate. <laughs> but I no, can actually I, mean, like, <laughs> I can offer a compelling mic defense if uh, if you'd like, Mike. Uh, I know exactly what you're talking about because I'm one of those casual comic readers and I have read Batman Year One. I have read The Long Halloween. I have read Watchmen. If you told me I had to pick up a trade paperback of a Marvel book, I would have no idea where to begin. Yes. And like and like Infinity Gauntlet is great, but I would never hand a casual fan Infinity Gauntlet like in a million years, right? Yeah. And it's like, you know, and what DC has done, because Al, everything you said is correct, both about like the industrial and economic realities of this, you know, and the long-term views of this. But what they also have been very savvy about creatively is like knowing which of those books, like, you know, New Frontier, like the most recent trade paperback edition had a black label logo stuck on it. You know what I mean? When they put out Mr. Miracle as single issues, that was not a black label book. I don't think I might be wrong, but when the trade came out, it's like black label. It's like, these are the things that like you can give to anybody. They can live on your bookshelf. What are the Marvel books that would fall under Marvel's black label is what I'm saying. Vision, right? Meet the Skrulls. You know what? I, I could even make a case for Supervillain Team-Up, which, which you also suggested, right? Like, I feel like Supervillain Team-Up, maybe it's not like high class enough if we're like comparing <laughs> this to, you know, to, to Black Label stuff. But, you know, you can just give that to somebody and be like, you know what a superhero is, you know what a supervillain is, like, have fun with this. Like, I, I think like there have to be more of these and we're just not thinking of them. Right. Well, I think there, I mean, you could do it with daredevil, for example, you could do it with born again, or you could do it with man without fear. Easy peasy. Either of those two books you could do with Um, X-Men God loves man kills. You could put in anybody's hands. You don't need to know anything about the to read that Spider-Man. It's more difficult, but there are things like Craven's last hunt, for example, um, Spidey is tricky, I think, a lot of the time because his book has tended to be so serialized. Like the soap opera element of it is so key to that book that it makes it more difficult to do very standalone, discrete volumes. There's plenty of things out there, you know, for example, just recently, Daniel Warren Johnson's Beta Ray Bill miniseries. It's again, it's not necessarily the you know brain food kind of comic, but if you had a, a large hardback, large format hardback of Beta Bill by Daniel Warren Johnson, yes, absolutely. I would take that. Weapon X is another good example of it. I think um, there's, there's a bunch of great stuff that if Marvel were minded to do it, could make for a terrific bookshelf of, of perennial volumes, as you say, things that should be kept in print forever. Like the fact that you know, there from time to time there may not be a version of Dark Phoenix Saga in print that isn't a hundred dollar omnibus is insanity to me. Like there should always be a good quality and affordable 
collection, which is just that story. And I don't even mean like an epic collection kind of thing, which is like, here's 20 issues and the Dark Phoenix saga is somewhere in the middle of these. You have to sift it out like you're panning yeah. for it. But it should just be, here's the book. That is the Dark Phoenix saga. Take that, go and, and do what you want with that. Preferably read it. After reading this, I'm really excited to um, get into Robbie Thompson's Spider-Man comic, uh, which is called Spidey. And the collected edition is called Spidey Freshman Year, I think, which is... I have read that and it is really yeah. good. Yeah, um, so I haven't read any of his comics before, and I'm really, I'm really excited to read his Spider Man. I think this, uh, that could be a fun read. I think, and if you've read it already and recommend it, then I definitely will. I think that's the only other Robbie Thompson that I've read. Uh, now that you mention it, um, and it's good. It's a good time. It's just what it's just what it looks like. Um, Alec, I know we have to move on from this. Like I took us way into the weeds, but um, <laughs> yeah. so Alec, you've read Batman Year One, but have you read Daredevil: Born Again? No. And actually when, when Al mentioned that, I'm like, Oh, you know what I have? That seems like that might be it. Right. Like if that Being is creative team, that, like anybody could just launch into, I think that might yes. be it. All you need to know is what you know from, you know, the world and same like David Mazzucchelli on art, same creative team as Batman year one. And dare I say it is even better. That is a book that in terms of like modern storytelling, it still feels like if that book came out right now, nobody would blink. You know, sometimes like we've made you read older comics, Alec, and you're like, this is pretty dense. Like, I don't know about this dialogue. Like, you did not, not an issue in Born Again. It's absolutely glorious. Daredevil is a weird character in that he really punches above his weight in terms of importance of the character versus quality of the comics. Like, there have been so many amazing Daredevil runs, often tied to the artists, but obviously like... Uh, to type the writers rather, but obviously amazing artists have worked on on uh, Daredevil too. Because when you think about, you know, Frank Miller, you think about Chip Starsky's current run, you think about um, Ed Brubaker, you, you think about the Bendis run, um, you think about the Mark Wade series, you also at that point have to start thinking about the fact that there's Chris Somney involved there. There is, as you say, David Muskelly involved. There is... Um, you know, Michael Lark and people like that. There are amazing creators have worked on Daredevil over the years. Man Without Fear being a, a Frank Miller and John Romita Jr. comic is and it's a terrific combination, but not one I would necessarily have thought to put together. They almost feel like two different sides of the 1980s at Marvel. But in terms of Robbie Thompson stuff, the other amazing series that he did was a 12-issue uh, series called Doctor Strange and the Sorcerer's Supreme. I mean, it, it is completely wild in terms of if you enjoy books like Promethea and things like that, this is a book to be reading because wow. it well, because of the fact that it's um the the layouts of the the pencils and so on, there are these incredible double double page spreads. Um, Javier Rodriguez is the artist on this who is just amazing and he does these incredible inventive um, double page spreads that are just beautiful um, there's an entire issue that is told landscape format um, it's the whole thing is fantastic it, it was you know a Doctor Strange B title so therefore it did not run for very long but it is excellent I definitely recommend people read that I'm definitely in so <laughs> now that 
now that I've once again steamrolled Kirsty's run of show, what are we moving on to? Are we to- are we going to talk about Secret Invasion now? Yeah, so um, next week's Marvel Standard, we'll be doing uh, Secret Invasion Episode 1, which comes out on 21st of June. Alec and I have been lucky, question mark, to see the first two episodes. And we'll perhaps offer some spoiler-free thoughts on it to wrap the episode up. Uh, would you be up for that, Alec? Sure. I was not prepared for this, but I can I can summon up all the hate in my heart pretty quickly. <laughs> I have not watched my screeners. So all I know is what I've seen in the trailers and that five minute clip. And I I've been intrigued. Like I've been, uh, you know, pretty, pretty excited about this show and seeing Alec and Kirsty having lukewarm responses right now is, uh, kind of hurting me a little. And, uh, Al, how about you? Did, did, did you get screeners? Have you had a chance to watch the first two episodes? I, I'm not a getting screeners guy. I'm just a schmuck. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, I mean, I'm just a schmuck and I still get screeners. So like, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. all the uh, comments I've seen today on Twitter about it have been mainly along the lines of this is Marvel wanting their own Andor. And I don't know the extent to what, which that is in any way fair or accurate. Shaking your head. No, it's not. It's not an Andor yeah i've seen i've seen a few people doing their you know reactions tweets so that they can get in the reactions article which uh i'm guilty of producing every time one of these things (laughs) comes out and it's uh there was a lot of this is marvel's andor and uh, after seeing it i just find that quite laughable no no it's not marvel's andor andor is a great show um written well paced Excellently, although I know a lot of people thought it was a bit slow to get started um, and kind of a slow ball, slow burn overall. Um, Secret Invasion is poorly paced and um, tonally messy and it doesn't quite work for me yet. I thought the first episode was pretty bad. The second episode was a bit better um but it's got some problems unfortunately for secret invasion like it was the the first marvel thing that i watched after across the spider-verse and after we like after we talked about like the level of effort and care and love that went into across the spider-verse to go back to the reality where we're just back on the marvel tv assembly line was whiplash inducing maybe secret invasion isn't even like as bad or uninspiring as i think it is maybe that's just part of the perspective but i'm just i'm i'm actually like i'm just reaching my personal limit with marvel tv properties that don't put in the effort and i'm sure people are working hard on it like there are actors there are writers there are producers i'm sure they're all doing their best uh, but the sem- the assembly line nature of these shows is really starting to become pretty grating. That's uh, that's disheartening. I, I I will say I was not enamored of uh, Andor after two episodes either, and then of course it became just like, you know, it was my number two TV show last year after Interview with the Vampire. Like it was just like and and at least one of those episodes was like the best hour of TV I watched all year. So. Maybe there's hope for Secret Invasion, right? Um, Is it, but, there's like literally, it's still in Skarsgård and Andor like looks down the barrel of the camera and said, I made my mind a sunless place. 
I burned down my life for a future I'll never see. Like, the idea of something like coming out of any of the four remaining episodes of Secret Invasion is pretty wild. <laughs> and and for, for Alec and Kirsty to be in perfect lockstep on like, this is a mediocrity is not, uh, <laughs> not thrilling. Yeah, I mean, is, is it, they, they want a, a serious conspiracy thriller. They want to go for the Winter Soldier vibes. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of uh, guys in uh, goofy green masks running around and it just doesn't, it just doesn't quite work. Like Captain Marvel got it right by bringing them in as allies, you know, and the scrolls just, just aren't working here for me, but we'll see. In Andor, though, surely that's you've also got a bunch of guys in goofy masks. <laughs> like everyone we, needs to get off the. This is Marvel's Andor. Train. If I hear somebody if I can spend one more time, I swear to God, spend one whole episode. Episode four of Secret Invasion is literally the domestic drama of um, Nick Fury's um, impending divorce, and it's just them all around the kitchen table complaining at each other. That's when we know it's Marvel's Andor. <laughs> can't wait i'm just hoping that you know we, we, we get three episodes of very serious spy stuff and then madison turns up with her cocktail and uh benedict wong in the background that's a far superior marvel show there's a possibility that this show could get better um and that it could retrospectively you know those first two episodes could, could work better i like how you say that in the same way as that you know that onion article that's like um, doctor and patient have wildly differing interpretations of the same statement and the doctor's like well I said he had a one percent chance of survival and the the, <laughs> the patient's like he said I have a chance <laughs> well is that it are there any uh any final thoughts on uh, meet the scrolls or secret invasion this week go read meet the scrolls you'll enjoy it yes there's a one shot which we didn't mention which we should mention which came out after Meet the Scrolls and has the Meet the Scrolls characters, which is Road to Empire, the Cree Scroll War. Am I right in yeah, thinking I think that's so. what's going on? Something like that. But it functions effectively as both a, a coda to the Meet the Scrolls uh, story and a primer for the Empire crossover, which actually is as big Marvel crossovers go. I think it's one of the better ones they've done in recent years. Cool. I have not read this. I thought it was over with Meet the Scrolls, so I'm glad to know there's a little bit more. Al, thank you so much for joining us. Why don't you remind yeah. everybody where they can find you? If people want to find me, they can go to Twitter, where I am at House to Astonish. And the reason for that faintly ridiculous name is because that is also the name of the comic book podcast, which I co-host with my friend Paul O'Brien, which can be found over at HouseToAstonish.com. Now in its fabulous 14th year and uh, also I do a, a show for um, Terry Pratchett fans called Desert Island Discworld and there's the first new episode of that in six months coming out this Sunday so that's over at desertislanddiscworld.com thank you so much and folks thank you because that is it for another episode of Denny Geek Presents Marvel Standing Live don't forget Make sure you're following us on YouTube and, of course, twitch.tv slash TV. 
Uh, we have uh, six episodes in a row coming, which now seems like a threat with these early secret <laughs> invasion reactions. So we'll see. Uh, we're also going to be at San Diego Comic-Con and we'll have some stuff coming out of that in July. Don't forget we are at Marvel Standom on Twitter and Instagram. Drop us a line. Let us know your burning questions. Tell us what you want us to cover in upcoming episodes. Don't forget we also have a DC show. Check out DC Standom where you can on all major podcast platforms. And of course, our amazing horror and paranormal show, Talking Strange, hosted by the brilliant Aaron Sagers. If you came in late, you'll be able to watch this entire episode on denigeek.com or at our YouTube home of Denigeek US. And don't forget, you can check out past episodes there and also wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you once again to Andrew Haley, the best producer in the multiverse. Thanks to Michael R., who makes the audio version of this show all can be. But most of all, thank every one of you for watching, listening, following, and subscribing. You know the drill. This has been Marvel Standom on the Denny Geek Network. Until next time, remember, folks, we stand together. <laughs>